Welcome to Writer Types, where we bring you interviews with authors, industry professionals, book reviews, short fiction, and more from across the crime and mystery fiction world. My name is Eric Beatner, and beside me is my co-host, S.W. Loudon. Hi, Steve. Hey there, Eric. We've got some really great stuff today, including a peek into the childhood of best-selling author Megan Abbott. I remember being a teenage girl and being filled with rage. <laughs> and then we'll ask author Lou Burney what it's like to win a major book award. I don't ever want to win again. It's just too awful. And we get a shocking confession from writer Steph Post. You know, I don't even really like trees that much. All that, plus a short story from Nick Kolakowski, a visit from our book reviewers, Dan and Kate Malman, and more. But first, Steve, good to see you. Have you read any good books lately? I was actually lucky enough to get a sneak peek at a new 280 Steps book called The Neon Lights Are Veins by Nolan Knight. Oh, yeah. Oh, I've been looking forward to that one. Yeah, I was too. And I got to tell you, I really feel like it was written for me because we grew up in the same geographical region in Southern California. And the story is about a former professional skateboarder who ends up living in Hollywood and gets involved with some prostitutes and some drug dealers. It's high action, very fast paced. It's a great read. Uh, highly recommended. No, I'm definitely going to check that one out. How about you? You know, I just finished reading yet another book by one of my favorite authors, a guy named Steve Brewer. One of his new ones is called Shotgun Boogie, and it's the start of a new series. But Brewer is one of those guys that I've never been let down by a single one of his books. And if you like Elmore Leonard and just that sort of straight ahead crime fiction with a little light humor, great pace, great action, Steve Brewer is definitely one to check out. I am in. So now it's time for our first guest, award-winning author Megan Abbott. And I am excited about this. Megan started out publishing her own brand of film noir-inspired period pieces with novels like The Song Is You, Die a Little, and Queenpin, which is probably my personal favorite. She's been nominated for the Anthony, Barry, and get this, three Edgar Awards. More recently, she's come into the 21st century with her books Dare Me, The Fever, and You Will Know Me. Megan spoke to us from her home in New York City. First thing, I want to just let you know what my image of Megan Abbott is in my head. So okay. I, I have this picture of you in a penthouse apartment in Manhattan. <laughs> You're standing at the window overlooking the night sky and the traffic below. There's a man with a tuxedo. You're drinking a gimlet and you're saying something like, oh, let's not go to the dogs tonight. <laughs> Is, oh, am I close? Is this what a, a That's the greatest. I, ha I do have gin in my apartment. That's about the only thing that bears a resemblance. I, I'm in Queens. I'm overlooking the Long Island Railroad. Uh, my, I have a super downstairs I could probably bring up for a gimlet. But, uh, <laughs> well, what's, <laughs> what's a typical day for you? Are, are you a, a real workaholic? Yeah, I am. I don't know. I mean, you know, I think that's sort of the novelist way. It's, uh, you know, it's the only way you get through the tunnel, or at least I, can, I know people who can write on the road and write at the airport and, you know, get everything they need to get done and, and, you know, a couple hours, but I'm not that writer. I'm a procrastinator. I stare at the computer. I fiddle with words. So I just, I spend all day at the computer and I try never even to have plans with anyone during the day because I, I can't miss the chance that I'll come up with the idea I need. So does that mean that you're waking up first thing in the morning and hitting your computer at 5 a.m. or is there a, a time of the day that you prefer to write? 
Yeah, I start in the morning. I used some days I still start really early. Now, since I've been alternating it with script writing, I go back and forth, but I'm generally really early until about four. I like to alternate between two things because that that helps in moments of crisis or or God, I won't even say the phrase aloud, but the the phrase about writers that you know, (laughs) that's superstitious to say, that thing that can happen when you can't think of what to write. So to avoid that, I like to keep keep it, you know, a lot a lot of balls in the air. And the scripts you're talking about, this is your new HBO show, is that right? It's that, uh, which has been great, the, the Deuce, which will air in August. Then I have a couple of my books are in development for TV, so I've been working on those pilots. It's interesting for somebody who's been a novelist to, to make the transition into script writing. Do you have a background in script writing, or is it something you're learning as you go? I'm learning as I go. I have no background other than I like to watch TV and movies. <laughs> but uh, um, but I, I had a crash course when I did a feature script for one of my books that, that got um, bought. But the TV writing has been truly an, uh, an adventure this year. Being in a writer's room, you know, everyone yelling at each other <laughs> and everyone pitching ideas is really the opposite of a novelist. But for a crash course, that's a pretty impressive room full of people to be in. I mean, tell us who's on the staff there. Yeah, it, you know, it was deeply terrifying. I was, <laughs> it was a year of nightmares for me. It was, it's David Simon, George Pelicanos, Richard Price, and Lisa Lutz. And Lisa and I were both new, the newbies, uh, obviously. (laughs) Well, let's talk a little bit about your novels. So you started with those first few novels were all period sets, and then you made the transition to the last couple novels have been contemporary. First off, what was it about the period that appealed to you so much for those early books? Yeah, I never would have started writing had I not fallen in love with with film noir, old movies in general, gangster movies, but especially film noir. And so I just find mid-century America, but the past in particular, just completely intoxicating. So it was just really uh, a place I wanted to be. So writing was a, a way to sort of arrive in that place. The End of Everything seemed to be sort of your transitional book because it was set a little bit further into uh, the future than those early novels, but still in the past in an era that was out of your own life. Do you see that as sort of your transitional book? And did it give you confidence to write uh, a more contemporary voice? I think so. I don't know. It's been gradual. I'm not as thoughtful about my choices as, as it may appear. Uh, it was really, uh, that was the first book I'd ever started to write before I really knew how to write a book. It was really just sort of a story that really interested me. And then I started to get interested in, you know, the weirdnesses and rage of teenage girls. And so then I followed that. And then I started to get interested in warped families and I followed that. So it's really, it's not as concerted as it looks. It's really just chasing tales, you know. <laughs> Some of the girls that you've written about are can be a little vicious, a little mean. <laughs> What's your experience with girls like that? Yeah, I mean, they don't seem mean to me. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I Have can't... you read your own book? <laughs> well, I think you would never say that if it were a boy, but we have, still have this fantasy of how teenage girls are supposed to be and they're supposed to be pretty and sweet and maybe a little vapid, a little blank, you know, but I don't know. To me, I think that, you know, expressing natural feelings of aggression like a teenage boy might, when we see it on a girl, it just feels terrifying because as a culture, we were told that it's just not, it should not be. 
And how aware of that are you when you go into writing your books? Is that something you're pointedly going to write about or does it sort of unfold as the story unfolds? It unfolds. It sort of comes naturally because I remember being a teenage girl and being filled with rage <laughs> and, uh, and desire and all this stuff. So then, you know, it kind of flows from, from that. Wow. For a new podcast, uh, we were really lucky to get Megan Abbott as our first interview. Absolutely. She is the best. And we are equally lucky right now to be joined by our dynamic duo of book reviewers, Dan and Kate Malman. Dan and Kate come to us each episode on loan from Crime Spree magazine, where they're reviewers of both novels and comics. They're here with a look back at 2016 and a look forward to the new year ahead. Hey, everybody. I'm Dan Melman. This is Kate Melman. Say hi, Kate. Hi, Kate. We're currently calling this in from uh, Snowbound, Minnesota. Our two co-hosts are in sunny L.A. We hate them. Now, hey, listen, it's in the like low 70s today. Steve and I are doing this in front of a roaring fire. Kind of makes me want to roast marshmallows. Oh. It's going to be minus 24 here tomorrow. That's not a real number. <laughs> it, 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 it says right out here, it's minus 24. Yeah, it's, it's bordering on Kelvin, absolute zero. <laughs> Uh, Kate, what did you like uh, as far as books were concerned last year? I've been preaching my top five books lately. Here are the top five in no particular order. First one is a graphic novel called I Hate Fairyland by Scotty Young. It follows young Gertrude who's been stuck in Fairyland for the last 20 years and she desperately wants to go home and the residents of Fairyland desperately want her to go home. And she's done nothing over the last 20 years but lay waste to Fairyland and leave a trail of absolute destruction in her path. Great read. Next is Floodgate by Johnny Shaw. Next is The Passenger by Lisa Lutz. I've been an evangelist for this book all year. I can't tell enough people to read it, but in it, a woman basically is running from her past and she just can't run any longer. Next is Salem Cipher by Jess Lowry, a fast-paced thriller where two women embark on a cross-country adventure to save their moms who have been kidnapped by a centuries-old misogynist organization. And at the same time, this organization is trying to prevent the first woman from ever becoming president. It hits a little close to home in light of what happened in November, but it's a really great read. Something totally different from what I've ever read from Jess Lowry. I really enjoy it. Number five is Revolver by Dwayne Straczynski. This book has just an amazingly strong female lead that has flaws, but she doesn't dwell on it. Whereas other books that I read this year, the female leads constantly brought up that they were flawed and this is why they had the things that they got and girls like them don't get the good things. So those are the things that I read this year. And what are you looking forward to in 2017, Dan? Things have been so, so dark. When you talk about um, things that, that we have read or things that we're looking forward to reading, 2016 has been dark in so many different ways. Personally, I'm looking forward to uh, more fun in the stories. It's easy to go grim and cynical and there's so much of that in our world right now anyway. So a book that can make you go, I feel this. I like this. It makes me happy. That's something that I'm enjoying. So as far as comic books are concerned, the thing that I've really been enjoying, 2016 DC Comics launched their Rebirth Initiative. It's a line-wide effort to bring um, the legacy and long-lasting relationship aspects of Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman, and all the rest of the DC heroes back to the forefront of their stories again. So far, the main Superman book has been showcasing this by focusing on Superman's relationship with his son, Jonathan, who is, of course, the new Superboy. This book is an absolute joy to read. Uh, it makes me smile every time I read a new issue. And really, that's what a Superman story should do. It should make you smile. 
Do you ever uh, ask Kate to call you Superboy? I'm wearing the cape right now. <laughs> it's, it's under my hoodie. Wow, a nice look back at uh, 2016. I can wholeheartedly agree with Revolver. That was one of my favorite reads of the year also. And it's nice to see Dan being so optimistic uh, looking ahead. Some great recommendations, don't you think? Absolutely, Eric. And speaking of recommendations, next up, let's talk to an author who a lot of people were recommending last year for his novel, The Long and Far Away Gone, author Lou Burney. Now, Lou is the author of two previous novels, Gutshot Straight and Whiplash River, but it was The Long and Far Away Gone that really took the publishing world by storm last year, racking up the Edgar, the Barry, the Anthony, and the McCavity Awards. And still, he was kind enough to make time for us here on Writer Types. So, Lou Burney, how does it feel to win all of the awards? It wasn't all the awards. I did not win the Nobel or uh, MacArthur Genius Grant, so I was a little disappointed. Well, the good news is we're going to award you the Genius Grant for this podcast. Uh, just send a check. I'll give you an address after we stop, and you can send the check straight to me. You should send uh, Patty Smith to accept your award. <laughs> yeah. I'll send Dylan to accept it. <laughs> So obviously, uh, The Long and Far Away Gone is the book that broke out for you this year. One thing I wanted to ask is you've got these two parallel stories going on in that book. And the great suspense of that novel is sort of when and how these stories are going to meet up. How much of an architectural build was that for you when you were writing? And, and did you really know all the pieces before you started out or did you, were you winging it? Both. I, I had like a very detailed outline with how things were going to match up. And then probably 80% of it got thrown out over the course of the actual drafting. When I started to realize this was working, this was not working, this was not going to make sense. This is not playing well. This didn't feel right. So when you've got those two parallel stories going, how do you get the readers to trust you that they're actually going to meet up at some point and deliver for the readers? Yeah, that was a tricky thing because I knew, I mean, as a reader myself, when I start reading a book, expectations are established and you want them to be satisfied. I knew the two characters were going to have to come together, but I also just did not want it to happen in a kind of a cheesy way where they, you know, end up having sex and then solving each other's crimes the next morning. I mean, that might have been satisfying, but it would have been not right for, for me or the book. So I tried to sort of walk that tightrope about something that would be satisfying, but also kind of make sense and feel real in a way. So you're obviously a writer who likes to challenge himself quite a lot. Not not intentionally. Like I really try to do whatever I can to make it easy as possible. Like a novel, any writer, you guys know, like writing a novel is hard. And so to make it as easy as possible on yourself is the goal. But for me, unfortunately, the part of that is just doing something different each time. Like if I try to write another detective novel, I, I used all my detective skills in my one detective novel. So I think I'm just going to keep writing one book at a time until I run through all the subgenres possible. I guess the, the question that Eric and I would want to ask you, and it's a little self-serving, but how can you help us practice for when and if we get to accept some awards? What, what, what techniques do you have for giving an award speech? I'm exactly the wrong person to ask that. I give the worst acceptance speeches probably in the history of crime fiction. And uh, at the Edgars, I won the Edgar. And at the time, I talked to my friend Chris Pavoni, who was a really good writer, and he'd won an Edgar a couple years earlier and gave this great speech. And, and he came up to me, at the party before the Edgars and was like, so do you have something planned? And I'm like, no, I'm not going to plan anything. I'm not going to win. And I also just felt it kind of arrogant to plan something. And he's like, yeah, I didn't plan anything either. So I was like, all right, if Pavoni can do it, how, how hard can it be? I felt like I could handle pressure. Like, I feel like, all right, if I do win, I'm not going to panic and black out. 
I did. I panicked and blacked out when I heard my name. So by the time I got up there, I didn't, I don't remember what I said. And it was just a complete babble because I didn't prepare anything and I had blacked out. I knew it was bad because people would come up to me and very like tenderly pat me on the shoulder and say like, you did fine. That sort of thing, you know? And so, <laughs> so like, uh, I don't ever want to win again. It's just too awful. Well, Lou Bernie, thanks so much for, for joining us. And uh, here's your, your last chance to sign off. We would like you to uh, give an acceptance speech for the honor of being on Writer Types. It's been a privilege and an honor uh, to be on, um, what's the name of the show again? <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. So if I heard Lou correctly, we should start typing up our acceptance speeches now. Well, first things first, I need to type up an award-winning book. But either way, solid advice. Thanks, Lou. You are listening to Writer Types. I'm Eric Beatner. And I'm Steve Loudon. We're going to move from Oklahoma to Honolulu now for a quick chat with Gay Coburn Gale. She's the chair for Left Coast Crime 2017. What can you tell us about this year's event, Gay? Left Coast Crime 2017 is in Honolulu, and we've taken the tagline, Honolulu Havoc. It's a great opportunity for authors and fans to get together and connect. We're so excited. We've got panels and presentations, the opening ceremonies, and the Lefty Awards Banquet, of course. We have the greatest lineup of guests of honor. Lifetime Award winners are the Kellermans, Faye and Jonathan Kellerman, who each are New York Times best-selling authors. We have a guest of honor, Dana Stabenow from Alaska, and Colin Cotterell, which many people may not know about, but he writes two great series, one set in, in Asia. Well, besides our living guests of honor, this year we've got a ghost of honor, Earl Durr Biggers, an author who was the creator in the 1920s of Charlie Chan. And we're gonna have a Charlie Chan movie night on Thursday night after the opening ceremony. Go to leftcoastcrime.org forward slash 2017 and you can register online. It's as easy as that. Everybody's welcome and it's gonna be a fantastic gathering. Honolulu in March sounds pretty good to me. Oh yeah, I've had it such a blast at all of the Left Coast Crime events that I've been to. Well, I don't know about you, Eric, but I think it's story time. What do you say? Absolutely. You know, every episode, our partners at Shotgun Honey hand select a short story for you, and we invite the author to read you that story. Shotgun Honey is the premier website for flash fiction under 700 words. So to get your quick fix of crime fiction, go to shotgunhoney.com and check out what's new. You can browse the archives and see what's being published by One Eye Press. And on this episode, we have Whoops by Nick Kolakowski. This is Nick Kolakowski. And today I'm going to read my short story, Whoops. The SWAT cop kicked in the front door of the crack shack, and Ricky followed him inside, scattergun pumped and ready to fill the air with an unhealthy amount of lead. The cop behind them shouted something about arrest warrants, but Ricky had no intention of arresting anyone today, especially if the anyone happened to be Ivan, his ex-partner in a recent entrepreneurial venture. The column of SWAT ants headed left, into the seedy living room with the brownish curtains, while Ricky veered right, through the kitchen piled high with soggy paper plates and crusted pots. Past the kitchen, a short hallway, and the bedroom beyond, Ricky's finger whispering on the trigger. When the shadow darted into the bedroom doorway, he almost blasted it to shreds, stopped before the last quarter pound of pressure by a familiar face. Two familiar faces, in fact, one barely visible behind the other. 
Ricky's former business partner had a silver pistol to the lady's head. The lady's lip quivered. Tears ran down her cheeks. Ricky cursed his choice of armament, not exactly fit for precision work. Ivan grinned, and Ricky lowered the shotgun a few inches. We talk now, for real, okay? Ivan said. For real, Ricky replied. Okay. Hearing SWAT in the kitchen behind him, he raised a fist in the air, stopping them in their tracks. They had assault rifles, but it was a narrow hallway and not much of a shot without hitting a cop or a hostage. Ivan, who had spent a couple of years doing casually horrific things in Chechnya, knew his way around a tactical standoff. The goods, Ivan said. The goods, Ricky parroted, lowering his fist so he could take firmer hold of the shotgun, which had drooped even further toward the floor. A good metaphor for his impotence in this situation, whispered the snotty 12th grader who still lived in his head. Are not here, Ivan continued. The goods are not here. I go to get them with your wife here. Then I leave town. Anyone tries to stop me, your wife dies. He went to Daisy Street and grabbed her, Ricky said, hoping to keep Ivan talking, but only about this kidnapping thing. If Ivan blurted out how Ricky had swiped a duffel full of weed from the evidence room, the two of them would probably end up in a cell together, and what a treat that would be. Yes, Ivan nodded, sweaty, impatient. I look up a dress on your driver's license. Note to self, Ricky thought. Next time you need to make your mortgage payment, try to do it in a life-affirming and legal way, like getting a second job flipping burgers instead of handing over 50 pounds of pot for a lunatic Russian to sell. Gee, I need to renew that license, Ricky said, hearing footsteps behind him, praying SWAT would refrain from anything stupid. It's been, what, five years? Must almost be expired. Shut up. Ivan ground the pistol hard into the woman's temple. Your wife and I, we leave now. Clear a path. Ricky sighed. There's just one little problem. What's that? Ivan said. Locking eyes of the woman, Ricky said, that's not my wife. Ivan's jaw dropped like a broken elevator. Huh? That's my ex-wife, you moron. Ricky raised a shotgun. The one I paid too much alimony and child support to. Whoops. Jane, his ex-wife, took the opportunity to dive hard for the floor, and Ricky earned himself a little karma by aiming a tad high as he pulled the trigger, clearing Ivan's mind once and for all. You ruined my dress, Jane said, peeling the red-soaked skirt from her legs. You're welcome, Ricky said, directing the SWAT cops into the room to clear it, while standing atop the square of floorboards where he knew Ivan kept most of his money hidden. Mortgage still had to be paid, right? I'll send the cleaning bill to your child bride, Jane smirked. Now be a dear and drive me home. Whoa, whoops indeed. That took a dark turn. Yeah, it sure did, Eric. Thanks to Nick and our partners at Shotgun Honey. And come back here every episode for a new story. It's time now for our Unpanel, where we ask several authors a question for a virtual panel discussion. And this time around, we have authors S.G. Redling, Gary Phillips, and Jay Stringer. This week, we asked our Unpanel authors what their favorite bookstore is. Hi, this is Gary Phillips calling from somewhere amid the vast Southland. Most recently, I've co-authored the gritty crime comic Peepland, soloed on Vigilante Southland, and did my first ever Sherlock Holmes story in Echoes of Sherlock Holmes. It's too tough picking my favorite bookstore, but many years ago, I stumbled into Esalon Books, a bookstore then as now specializing in books by African-Americans, as well as by those with uh, black folk as the main focus, no matter the writer's color. You know, I don't really recall my first book that I bought there. Maybe uh, Basil Davidson's Lost Cities of Africa or The Glass House Tapes, edited by Donald Freed. Now, The Glass House Tapes is, you know, that's a great book, man, because it chronicles uh, the destabilization efforts of an agent provocateur 
Louis E. Tackwood. And man, it reads like Tarantino cross with goings. It's a real deal. Uh, you know what? Now that I think about it after all this time, I'd love to turn the tapes into a graphic novel. Yeah, well, maybe one day. I'm out. Hi, I'm S.G. Redling. I'm calling in from Huntington, West Virginia. I'm the author of Flower Town and Damocles and the Danny Britton series, among others. I live in a small town, sort of mall America, so my answer is not really a correct answer. I, my actual answer for my favorite bookstore was Nick's News. It was really more of that old newsstand where you could get like New York Times and Hustler and comic books and Hallmark figurines and all the same place. But what I had were those great paperback racks. I don't know who organized these racks or if they had any idea what they were putting on them, but they were just chock full of this huge variety of authors. Like Agatha Christie would be next to Louis L'Amour and Isaac Asimov would be with the novelization of Escape to Witch Mountain. I didn't know what was cool. I didn't know what I was supposed to read. So I just read all of them. And they were super cheap and just, they always changed. So it was probably the most formative bookstore I'd ever been in. And of course it wasn't even a bookstore. This is Jay Stringer calling from Glasgow, Scotland. I'm the author of the Owen Miller trilogy and How to Kill Friends and Implicate People. My favorite bookstore, well, get ready because I'm about to throw a bunch of English town names at you. There wasn't a bookshop in Darleston where I grew up. I, I could get a bus to Warsaw or Wolverhampton and they each had one chain store. But I'm dyslexic, so I was and, and sometimes still am very nervous around books and reading. So my favorite store was in the next town over from mine. It was a secondhand store called Simmons, which I don't think is there anymore. It was a 20 minute walk and I could go after school or on Saturdays and buy cheap old paperbacks for less than a pound. And, and it helped me to get reading. Ian Fleming, Douglas Adams, Michael Moorcock, 70s horror paperbacks with monsters in them. Uh, and the real joy of an old secondhand store is that there's random books that you find because everything was less segregated than a normal bookstore. So that the shop gave me confidence to read and, uh, and some very wide tastes. Interesting. All very, very different answers. Let me ask you, what was your favorite bookstore growing up? Growing up, I was always very intimidated by bookstores. I would walk in and see huge, huge racks of books, and I wouldn't know where to start. And I think the first bookstore I really fell in love with and had a kinship with was the Mystery Bookstore here in L.A. in the Westwood neighborhood. And I think part of that was because it was the first place that I really started meeting and interacting with uh, fellow crime writers. And it was a great place to meet people, get advice, uh, and also get some really amazing books. How about you? You know, the bookstore that kind of first blew my mind was when I was in high school and, you know, discovering punk rock music and discovering uh, outsider literature sort of at the same time. And there was a place in Hermosa Beach called Either Or Bookstore. And it was, you know, cat in the window, burning incense, <laughs> a couple of old hippies behind the counter. You gotta have a, gotta have a bookstore cat. Right, exactly. And uh, so that was the place where I would go and wander the aisles and, you know, pick out uh, books by Charles Bukowski or Kurt Vonnegut and take them to the counter and basically ask like, is this a good choice? And they always came through. It was a fantastic bookstore. It's gone now, but definitely think fondly about that. So you were that 16 year old kid reading Bukowski, that was you? Yeah, you know, you gotta start somewhere. <laughs> and now it's time to load the revolver and take six shots where we pose six questions to a publishing industry professional. In our sights this time around is Eric Campbell, founder and publisher of Down and Out Books, who are one of the fastest growing and most respected independent publishers in the crime fiction world. Full disclosure, both Eric and I have published books with Down and Out. 
And that's in addition to over 100 titles they've released since being founded in 2011. Mistakes that an author makes when they submit to a publisher include not sending over a good edit. If you send it over and it's riddled with spelling errors or simple grammatical errors, I could tell you I will close the file and not look at it again. I published crime fiction because when I was a kid growing up, that's what I read. Alfred Hitchcock and the Three Investigators Present was a, a 30 or 40 book series that I just clamored to get a hold of when I was 12 years old. And I've always been a crime fiction fan ever since then. Having the opportunity to now work with people that I still read and enjoy reading has been a thrill. Usually when I determine if I'm going to publish a book, I do read 20 or 30 pages at the beginning of the book. And then I'll read about 20 or 30 pages at the end of a book, make sure that the story comes together. If it's a book that intrigues me on both of those ends, then I'll go to the middle to ascertain whether or not I want to publish it. To release a novel, you've got to go through an editorial process. That editorial process does encompass, on my end, two folks that will, one folk, one person that will work on it from a, a flow in grammatical, and then a second set of eyes that goes through it from a, a line edit, comments, periods, quotes, all those kinds of things. And generally, uh, if they come back and accept most of the items that you identify, then, then or if they have questions, then you work those questions out via phone or, or email. Some things that draw me to a book, the plot, the character development. I've got to, I've got to like the characters, even if they're bad guys. I've got to like them. You've got to have something there that wants you to read more about that individual and, and find out what, what happens to them. Does it move? Is it uh, intriguing? And a lot of that comes through the strength of the voice, the, the author's voice. A single book that I would love to have the opportunity to publish is one that, that's never seen a light of day. It's called Grim Haven by Charles Williford. I've read it. It's a book that certainly in this day and age, while it's a very grim story, given what folks in the crime genre gravitate towards now, Grim Haven's not all that bad. Yeah, it's a rough book and, and there's some dirty things that happen within it, but He's, he's a hell of a writer, and I'd love to have the opportunity to work with uh, his wife, Betsy, on, on bringing that to the market. But it's been buried. It's in the archives of a library down in South Florida. On this episode, so far, we've talked with best-selling authors Megan Abbott and Lou Burney. But now it's time to introduce you to someone I think is going to be the next bestseller. Steph Post is the author of A Tree Born Crooked and a brand new one, Lightwood, which now, Steve, I know it's only January, but this is already one of my top books of the year. That's a pretty bold prediction, Eric. I can't wait to read it. You are going to love it. We caught up with Steph from her home in Florida, the state she lives in and writes about. Your first two novels have been set in, uh, I'll say, a less than flattering Florida. Uh, is this the kind of Florida that only a resident could love? Pretty much. Or only a resident uh, would know where it's actually located. This is middle of nowhere, north central Florida. Pretty much about an hour south of where I grew up. 
So it's not exactly my hometown area, but uh, pretty close. Now, you deal a lot in both of your books with uh, with family bonds and that idea of like obligation and commitment to family, even if it means putting yourself at risk. Like, what about that dynamic makes a good story to you? You know, when I was writing the first book, A Tree Born Crooked, I had no thoughts about family or anything. And then when I finished the book, I realized that was what it was about. And then, of course, the same thing happened with Lightwood, even though I went into it with much more of an intention. I grew up around a lot of family, a lot of crazy aunts, uncles. None of the characters in the book are based explicitly on them, but you can kind of get a vibe. Have you had everybody's favorite experience of having a family member claim that they're a character in one of your books? You know, I was worried about that. I remember uh, when I let my mom read Lightwood. She actually does read all my work when it's finished. But I told her, I was like, you know, I'm kind of nervous and worried that, you know, aunt so-and-so and uncle so-and-so are going to, you know, have problems with this. And she's like, you know, oh, honey, don't worry. They don't read. <laughs> Before we, we started recording, I was uh, telling Steve how good Lightwood is. And I've made it a mission to tell everyone I know. <laughs> how good this book is. I think one of the things that I really loved about it is it has that driving forward narrative. It's constantly moving forward. And that's the thing I really, I think, admire most in, in great fiction, especially crime fiction. So how important is it for you to keep up that momentum in a story? I think it's hugely important. I mean, I'm a fan of, of everything from crime to mystery to thrillers to Victorian novels. But when I write, I see everything as if it's happening on the screen. So everything, every scene, it, it built as if it was a scene in a television show or uh, in a movie. So in writing, I think I always have sort of tried to convey that, the visual part of it. So a lot of the the more literary parts or the more introspection um, that can be done in different genres just doesn't necessarily have a place. So speaking of imagery, both of your books reference trees in the title. Is there, was that intentional? <laughs> you know, I don't even really like trees that much. But, <laughs> How um, do you not like trees? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I do, but it probably comes from um, I grew up in the middle of nowhere, in more of a swamp area, actually. Think of like the movie Waterboy. Um, You're literally like a swamp person? Yes. I mean, I uh, I grew up running from alligators kind of Whoa. thing. Yeah. I grew up being treed by uh, wild boars at one point. Um, <laughs> wow. Which is really the smartest thing to do if you ever get chased by wild boars or alligators. Run, run up a tree? Climb a tree. They can't climb. Okay. So. Now, see, th this is this yeah. is the good stuff here. This <laughs> Write is, that down. Yeah. Because I right. think that's useful. When the zombie apocalypse happens. You're going to wish you knew these things. <laughs> I'm telling you, Steve, Lightwood is going to be on a lot of best of lists come the end of the year. I am definitely going to pick up a copy of that book, Eric. So thanks for the suggestion. And Steph, thanks for your interview today. Uh, we've learned some really incredible things today. From Megan Abbott, we learned teenage girls are filled with rage. True, yeah. And from Lou Bernie, we learned to be prepared when you're nominated for an award, unless you want to black out. And perhaps most importantly, Steph Post taught us if you're ever being chased by a wild boar... Yeah, run up a tree. Absolutely. Yeah. But we all kind of knew that. I, I didn't, Eric. You got to get out more. <laughs> Well, that does it for this episode. We'd like to thank all of our guests and contributors for joining us. 
You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and SoundCloud. And if you like what you hear, please don't be afraid to share this episode with your friends. Or your enemies, doesn't matter. This show is produced and edited by Eric Beatner and S.W. Loudon. You can find out more about Steve's books, including the Greg Salem series at swloudon.com. And you can find out about Eric's books at the cleverly titled ericbeatner.com. Join us right here every month for a new episode of Writer Types. Thanks for listening. Hey.